know the why human trafficking work is needed to fight for the freedom of modern day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field so that you can cut through the noise, save time, and be about the work of saving lives. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation Network. This week, we have Dr. Austin Choi Fitzpatrick. He's an author, an educator, and a speaker. His work focuses on politics, culture, technology, and most importantly, social change. His recent books include The Good Drone, We're going to talk about that. That's how technology in the air changes politics on the ground. His other book, What Slaveholders Think. I think that is fascinating. It's a groundbreaking study of perpetrators. And his other book, From Human Trafficking to Human Rights, which I read, I think it's awesome. It actually helped change my trajectory. And it really argues for systems level approaches to ending slavery. Austin is an associate professor at the Croc School of Peace Studies, University of San Diego. He's also an associate professor at the University of Nottingham, where he's a principal researcher at the Rights Lab. And they are working on interdisciplinary teams to work to end slavery by 2030. And we're going to talk to him about that as well. Just a very interesting episode. And I think he will strengthen your passion uh, to be a social justice advocate. So thank you, Austin, for joining us. So happy to be here. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me. Yeah, so you are doing such great work. Um, And so tell us about, I just want to talk about your first book, and then I want to talk about how you are a professor at both places and what you do. And just (laughs) your brain is so fascinating to me. I really do love the book, Human Trafficking and Human Rights. I think it does give people a great perspective. And I recommend that people really read that who want to be social justice advocates. So, but tell us about the good drone and really um, how that has to anything to do with human trafficking? <laughs> so the, the, that's a great question. What does the good drone have to do with human trafficking? So this is a, a new book about social movements and technology. And I'm a social movement scholar primarily. So lots of my work has been around the case study, the very important case study of the contemporary anti-slavery movement, asking what should we be doing? Where are we headed? What's missing? What's working? And so that's where my, my last two books... Um, the, the What Slaveholders Think project a couple of years ago, and then, as you mentioned, the, the From Human Trafficking to Human Rights project, asking these important questions, or what are, we, what are we not looking at? And this new book, The Good Drone, is taking a very different tact and asking what are social movements and social movement scholars not looking at? And my answer is, well, we're not taking technology seriously. And I, don't, and I think we're going to spend more of our time talking about about trafficking and slavery and the anti-slavery movement. But just a, a brief note on the book is that I wrote it because I was in the middle of uh, protests and saw drones being used, was using drones myself, and went to write up a quick piece about how technology can really shape the way that uh, social movements work. 
and the sorts of resources they have. And I found lots, not, no surprise to, to you or to your listeners, I found lots and lots of work on social media and the importance of using social media to spread the word about the movement, raise awareness, but not so much about the use of technology in order to actually document things, in order to change politics on the ground, in order to raise the cost of the status quo for whoever it is they're targeting. So I wrote this book, and the, the title is The Good Drone, and then the subtitle is How Social Movements Democratize Surveillance. And so that's actually the punchline of the book. How is it that social movements can democratize surveillance, and how can they raise the cost of doing whatever it is that social movements want to stop have stop happening? How can they raise the cost of continuing to just do the same old things? In a lot of ways, while the book is about technology, new forms of technology, that's the question the anti-slavery movement is really asking itself over the last 20 years. How do we raise the cost of doing things that shouldn't be done for perpetrators, for, direct, for, for users, for exploiters, for corporations that are making ill-gotten gain on the back of, of expropriated labor? Mm -hmm. And that was something I'd wrestled with in my last book, What Slaveholders Think, is what is it that would, what, what would it take for these perpetrators who I interviewed to to shift out of this line of work and shift, more importantly, out of this way of thinking. And so I think that's a kind of a central theme throughout my work is, is what does real change look like? What does sustainable emancipation look like? What are the tools for making the status quo uncomfortable for, especially for perpetrators and incumbents, people in positions of power? And so I think that's kind of how this, this book, while it's more about technology, circles around to something that's animated, I think, the last, the last mm -hmm. three books of mine. And how could, how could drones be used in, in anti-trafficking work, for example? Yeah, that's a great question. So the so one of the so the book itself is about drones and satellites. I even have case studies and examples of using kites and balloons. You know, much more democratic because they have a string and you can see mm -hmm. who's holding them on the ground, right? Mm -hmm. But I but it, the question throughout is how does technology, new or old, in the air change what we can see? And what does that change, as I mentioned earlier, about sort of po politics and, and social social relations on the ground? So you mentioned the Rights Lab earlier with the team at the University of Nottingham. We have a slavery from space initiative and one of our most recent um i guess i don't want to say successes but big projects was we used satellite data from planet labs which is this, this large um, for-profit corporation that's offered their imagery to help us with this project we looked at the the brick kiln spread that covers the, the brick belt, which is Pakistan, you know, parts of India and into Bangladesh. And this is where a tremendous amount of bonded labor happens, for example, where people are, are you know, held in bonded labor conditions in on kiln properties doing brick kiln work, heavy manual labor sort of stuff without compensation, with abuse, the classic, classic um, issues that your listeners are well familiar with. The puzzle here is if you're an advocacy group and you want to go out and do something about that situation, or you're a researcher and you want to sample within, let's say, that whole universe of cases to see what level of prevalence there is, we do a simple thing. Whether an advocacy group or a researcher, we ask ourselves, okay, well, how many kilns are there? And then we'll go, we'll go random sample 100 kilns, and we'll have some kind of rough estimate of prevalence. So you go to the local the local level and you ask where you know how many how many kilns are there in the region? No data. Go up to the state level. Sorry, we don't keep that data. So you go to the national level, 
to the national, to the federal government, you say, hey, federal government of India, um, what, what is the number and location of these kilns? And the answer is we don't have that data. Now, the Indian government is a capable government. They've just, they closed down during the pandemic and, and sent a lots of people home and that, that um, people obeyed and complied and stayed home. They've just rolled out, there's been some hiccups with it, but they've rolled out a national identification scheme over the last few years. The Indian government is capable of doing large scale projects when it has the political will to do so. So we can ask, why is there not a registry of brick kilns? And it might be incompetence and it might be a lack of political will. I'm, mm-hmm. My money's on the latter because I think the Indian government is capable. Yeah. So then the question becomes, who's going to do this? Who's going to give us this baseline estimate? And so just for example, at the lab, we've developed that baseline estimate. And so now if you want to know how many kilns there are, we've got these estimates and then you can sample within them to say, for example, you and I can do a study and say, we're going to go and sample within, you know, every other kiln. Well, now we know which is the every and which is the other, right? Mm-hmm. And, the, and so that's the kind of like, bait. that's just one out of many projects that we're working on at the Wrights Lab. But that shows this overlap between a kind of question we couldn't ask just by going through government files, but we can, or we couldn't answer using government files, but we can answer, I don't want to say quickly and easily because there's a lot of hard work, but with satellite data, we're able to actually a- answer that much more directly. You guys are, I think maybe the, the Elon Musk of you know, anti-trafficking work or <laughs> social justice work. Yeah. Slavery <laughs> from space is awesome. I love that idea. It's just, I, you know, this is a, this is a quick side note, but I, I have, I've, you know, I, I was taught at a school of public policy. Now I'm at school of peace studies. Now I'm at this interdisciplinary rights lab. And I'm consistently struck by how often problems that are students who go out into the world, how often the issues that they face, or I'm, I have a partner who works in the nonprofit sector and has projects all over the world. So I'm struck by how often our, our, the challenges we face are not just social, they're social and economic, mm-hmm. or they're social and they're technical, or they're social and political. They're never just this one kind of thing. And so really it's the social and the technical that I think in this, just in this, you know, part of our conversation, in this example are so bound up together because it's not just technology for technology's sake, it's technology. So it can move the needle on a particular social, economic, or political practice that we think should be happening differently, which is why we're social. I'm a social movement person. You know, we want change. We don't want to just know how things work. We want to know how things work so we can make, we can make a difference. Brief interruption to this fantastic podcast with Dr. Choi Fitzpatrick while Anna, our conference planner, tells you about our annual International Human Trafficking and Social Justice Conference coming up in September. The International Human Trafficking and Social Justice Conference is the largest and oldest academic conference on human trafficking in the nation. Join us for our 17th annual conference hosted virtually on September 23rd through the 25th. Now you can join thousands of advocates, researchers, experts, and survivors from all over the world in the comfort of your own home. Find out more information and register today on our website, traffickingconference.com. Now back to Dr. Choi Fitzpatrick. Yeah, I think the marriage between technology and social movements is is an excellent one. And I think you're asking people to really raise the bar from using technology in sense in the sense of raising awareness to actually creating change. So now tell me what what sparked in you the reason to write the book 
what slaveholders think. Where did that come from and how did you do that? And what do slaveholders think? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You know, the slaveholders think book came out of a, I guess there's two, there's two answers to that. The first is, and there's an academic, the sort of academic answer is that in scholarship on social movements, we tend not to ask questions about um, social movement targets in the human rights literature. We tend not to ask as many questions about human rights perpetrators and in the slavery and trafficking scholarship, we tend not to talk that much about perpetrators as something other than villains or as criminals, which, are tr- which is true, but it doesn't give us that uh, very much of a nuanced understanding of who these people are in their lives, what motivates them, and, and we lack sort of a nuanced and sophisticated sort of understanding of who these folks are in human rights scholarship, social movement scholarship, slavery and trafficking, contemporary slavery and trafficking studies. In each of these areas, we, we lack sophistication. So that's a kind of, you know, why is this a book and why is it published with a, you know, with a publisher and, and, and what does it contribute to the literature in a more academic sense? In a more personal sense, it's another, um, I don't know, stroke in a painting or another note in a, in a song or something that I've been trying, that I've been working on for almost 20 years, which is asking what does sustainable emancipation look like? How do people get out and stay out of slavery or out of exploitation, out of exploitative situations? And over time in asking that question, and this is what brought me to the, from human trafficking to human rights project, arguing we need to be thinking about human rights, right? Mm-hmm. Across all of those has been a, a concern for, for victims and survivors and human th- and thriving, this sort of thing. And I realized that in that entire story, the, this other party gets left out. Mm-hmm. And this is a fundamental sort of insight from Paulo Freire's, this idea that there's not emancipation for, that perpetrators need to be emancipated from oppressive systems of oppressing. And that po- it's possible also that the only folks who can do that are, are the, the exploited. And so this has got this got me wrestling, you know, with this question about whether or not the best way to end slavery and trafficking is to simply arrest all the bad guys. Turns out in India, in in uh, trafficking for sexual exploitation, half the bad guys are women. In mm-hmm. in, in some cases where where you know where uh, brothels and uh, were raided, and they looked at who the who was actually the management level were survivors who had worked their, worked their way into positions of authority. So. So all of a sudden, it's not, you know, the bad guy, the gendering of the bad guy trope doesn't even work, right? Mm-hmm. And, so the, the, and so it just means we need to ask more sophisticated questions about what after, how ending slavery might work and what after slavery might look like. And so this is just one small contribution to that larger conversation. And, you know, like there's a whole team at, you know, at the rights lab at Nottingham working on just that question. What mm-hmm. does, what does um, freedom look like? Or is that different than agency? Is it different than emancipation? Is it, does it need to be sustainable or can it be one-off? And those are the sorts of things that nobody, I don't want to say nobody was talking about, 20 years ago when I first started this because nobody was really talking about anything other than, gosh, we should all be talking about this problem. Yeah, And we're 20 years in and we know a lot more about the problem and it's time we were more sophisticated in how we thought mm-hmm. about solutions. And I think perpetrators, yeah. having perpetrators perspective and having a perspective on perpetrators is an important, important part of that equation. 
I think I totally agree. I think that, um, and here in the U.S., um, women or girls who were victims grew up to then be bottoms and be support systems for the traffickers to go out and recruit and all of those things. It's a very complex, and I think we get very comfortable with just creating a caricature of the issue, sort of almost like a cartoon of black and white, and here's the good guys and here's the bad guys, and we prefer not to understand the complexities of it. And I think that makes us comfortable in that we know, you know, that we're going to go out, we're going to understand the good guys, the bad guys, we're going to raise awareness. And there you go, we've done our part. And what you're telling us, it's a that there's a lot more to do, that there's a lot more to learn, and that it's a lot more complex and layered than we want to believe. And if we want to make a big difference, we're going to have to understand the complexities of of the problem and come up with solutions that address the problems that are sustainable. So that's why I love particularly the book about human uh, human trafficking and human rights, because it really shifts the perspective of people. It's not it's not about rescuing people. The deeper issue is about human rights. So can you talk about that book a little bit and, and how you came to write that? Yeah, you know, I, I feel like just as I was listening to you, to, to that to that arc of yours, I think in some ways I wish I'd written that book now in the moment we're in. Because one of the things that I, together with the uh, my co-editor, or I'm sorry, your co-editor of the project, Alison Brisk, who does wonderful work on human rights and gender and human rights in Latin America, she and I's conviction going into that project was that there was an overemphasis on prevention, prosecution, the three Ps, which later became the four Ps, and an underemphasis on power and what, what empowerment looks like. And, and I think maybe if I was doing this project now, I would also add in a, a fifth P or a sixth P or something, uh, which would be privilege. And I think that we are have, I think we are in a moment right now, there's this history that I don't want to take too much of, of your time with, but there's this history over the last 20 years where in the first 10 or so years, there's a lot of work focused on trafficking as an international phenomenon, getting people's attention, getting anybody to pay attention. The, the, TDP, the TVPA got passed without money attached to it. And then, I mean, there was not, not an appropriations bill attached to it. And then the next year, quickly, there was an appropriations bill attached to it. And that money then came out. And then I was, I was hired by Free the Slaves in that first round of money. I'd been in this space for a couple of years, but this is, you know, this is now 17 years ago or so now. And in that wave, the attention was be, that we were putting was on was on in trafficking for international exploitation. And over the next couple of years, when that didn't trans, it turns out that just where those numbers weren't either um, real or visible. It became clear that there was going to be need to be a pivot, and the pivot was toward what later became called domestic trafficking. Or and now now there's just the, now now that language has all sort of gelled together. And now when we say trafficking, people think a number of things, including exploitation here in the United States, um, by by like in, you know local folks of local folks. Mm-hmm. And one of the challenges there is that I think we have not had a serious reckoning with the racial and racialized backbone of that that shift. Mm-hmm. And I haven't written about this, but there is this larger-ish area in which this 
this movement, the anti-trafficking movement in the United States and to a certain extent in the United Kingdom, has been a white movement and has been a, uh, lots have been written about how in its early days, this is an alliance, a very fruitful alliance between second wave feminists and between evangelicals, white evangelicals. And that history is what it is, but it has implications. And one of the implications is seeing the police as allies in an attempt to solve the problem. And what this leads to, in the shift from international international trafficking to domestic trafficking, it leads to a doubling down on white enforcement of privilege, white enforcement of space, and white utilization of the police in order to patrol um, people of color. And I think that is something, that is a long coming reckoning for the anti-trafficking movement. And when I wrote this, this from human trafficking to human rights, I was, I wrote it with, with Alison Brisk and wrote, wrote our, our contributions to that, to that volume out of an interest for seeing sustainable emancipation that has power, empowerment, and that um, has, some, has challenges to systems of authority. And what I didn't write is something I've believed for a long, long time, is that those systems of, of authority include the police. So just for example, um, when I was, I've been in and out of San Diego for the last 15 years or so, and I remember I was a human rights observer during the anti, it's either during the anti invasion of Iraq protest or it was a DACA protest, but I was a human rights observer, you know, trained by the Quakers, and then you go stand there and you observe the protesters and the counter demonstrators, and then, and you're there to make sure that, that uh, sort of human rights norms are observed. And I remember leaving that human rights observer position uh, on a Saturday to my meeting with our local task force, anti-trafficking task force that Monday. And my colleague from the FBI, who's our, you know, because you're working, we're, we're all working on these task forces, right? Mm-hmm. And my colleague from the, from the FBI, this is a long time ago, slid these glossy photos, these, these glossy eight by 10 photos across the counter at, or across the table, you know, where we're there with the sheriff's department and social services and right, right all, the, all the folks that we all know from, from these collaborations. And the glossy photos were me at the protest taken from the top of the buildings. Oh, and wow. it was me as a human rights observer. And so there we have this moment, right? As a human rights observer, I'm being monitored by the state. And as a, as a human rights advocate working on behalf of victims of trafficking, you know, and, and together with survivors of trafficking, I'm working next to the FBI, who's also surveilling me, or, you know, surveilling these protests, and I happen to be at mm-hmm. the protests, however you want to think about this. So this, so we have a tough relationship, I have a tough relationship, and have had in the past a tough relationship with law enforcement. Are they our allies? If they find, if they, the only people that they catch, and they arrest, and they book, and they charge, are people of color? And so I think there's a big, a larger question about who allies are and what sort of bridges we build. And when we build those bridges, what sort of bridges we burn as we work in community on behalf of marginalized, marginalized folks. So I wish I'd written that in that book. The reason I wrote the book was to talk about empowerment. Now I wish I'd talked about both empowerment and privilege. Wow. What a powerful first half of the interview with Dr. Choi Fitzpatrick. He challenges us to think about the issue differently to elevate ourselves to have a vision that moves beyond rescue and restore to an issue of human rights. He reminds us of how the movement started and that the movement has been and continues to be racialized and that we can't rest the entire movement on the shoulders of criminal justice because the movement is rooted in social problems. And social problems have always included elements of power 
and privilege, racism, sexism, and othering. We can't arrest our way out of this problem. How do we reach sustainable emancipation for all? Civil rights activist John Lewis, who passed away recently, left a letter to the nation. In it, he said, When you see something that's not right, you must say something. You must do something. Democracy is not a state. It's an act, and each generation must do its part to help build what we call the beloved community, a nation and world society at peace with itself. Continue to build union between movements stretching across the globe because we must put away our willingness to profit from the exploitation of others. I urge you, he said, to answer the highest calling of your heart and stand up for what you truly believe. When historians pick up their pens to write the story of the 21st century, let them say it was our generation who laid down the heavy burdens of hate at last and that peace finally triumphed over violence, aggression, and war. So I say to you, walk with the wind, brothers and sisters, and let the spirit of peace and the power of everlasting love be your guide. John Lewis Let's not just do something, let's do the best thing. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe and I'll send you the weekly podcast. Until then, the fight continues. <laughs>